I think every year about this time with our anniversary either coming up, as it's coming up, I'm starting to think about like, wow, <laughs> this last year has, has gone by very quickly and very slowly all at the same time. Just like kind of like any of our, our kids' birthdays, you're just kind of like in awe when you start pulling up the birthday pictures from last year, and it's just like, wow, so much has changed and nothing at all at the same time. <laughs> and, but I, this year, I think I've been reflecting on that even more than usual, in part because it's right around now. Like, so technically, our anniversary is August 14th, which is, by the way, also Danny Rankin's birthday and L. Tyler's birthday. It's not our prerequisite for staff. It's pure coincidence. But, but like, our anniversary plus a few weeks, so now, marks exactly the, the time that we as a church have been around and existed half of our time before the pandemic started and half of our time since the pandemic started. And that, just, just that juxtaposition has been a very strange reality, in part because I, I don't know how many of you feel like this in terms of your own lives, but it feels like we have both been like only ever known this kind of pandemic or post-pandemic world. That like we, When was there a time that we, we didn't have to worry about these things or didn't feel the, the, the vague and low-grade chronic anxiety of gathering into a room with large, you know, a large room with people? But also because it is, it is wild to think that half of our time has been since, spent since the pandemic started as a church, because it feels like the majority of our time still has been pre-pandemic. Let, let, me, let me just kind of do some contrast here, because I want to reflect on what God has done in the midst of all this, right? In the first half of our time in our existence, in our life as a church, we grew really fast, like, I don't know if you know, if you are familiar with the language of church planting or church planting, never mind in Boulder County, like we grew way faster than we were supposed to. It was not normal. It was amazing. It was an act of God and his grace. And even more than that, it wasn't just the quantity or the size of our church. It was also the people that God has been, was drawing into this church. And it was probably the most diverse church I have ever been a part of in terms of socio-political or cultural background, especially church background. I mean, we're a Presbyterian church, and we were at one point, the majority, the largest group of people had come from charismatic backgrounds. That's weird if you know anything, not about charismatics, but about Presbyterians, <laughs> okay? It was wild. It was almost like Jesus was big enough to bring a very, very di different group of people together, and a group of people that now, post-pandemic, man, it would actually take a miracle to be in a large room with other people like that, which is part of the reason why the second half of our life as a church, I'm just to be real honest, like as a pastor, like it has been hard. It's been really hard. We're at year one size, year one number of, you know, number of people, amount of resources, and that means year one approach. Like we have to go back to not just the basics, but to this really weird, unique time when we were a church that wasn't established. And yet at the same time, uh, we have like year 15 levels of energy and momentum, <laughs> right? Or maybe I'm just projecting. But even in the midst of all that, the thing that has been just that has just blown me away, is being able to stand up here and to look at all of y'all's faces and to know so many of the stories that have been authored by God over the last three and a half years alone. Some of you 
Some of you, several of you overcame addiction or substance abuse, especially, you know, we all drank a little bit more during the pandemic as a way of kind of like just managing and coping with stress, right? But for, for some of you, that, was, that, went a, that went a lot further than just drinking a little bit more. And you've come out of this. Many of you have persevered through anxiety and depression. The ways that the pandemic exposed fault lines in your marriage that you didn't even know were there. You've persevered through long COVID, other kinds of conflict, the loss of friends and family, either literally as in because they passed from COVID or because the rifts in our society are not limited to the world outside the church, but are actually part of the church now too. You've persevered through that. And, and, and all that is, that's, that's to say nothing of how the table has been this kind of like greenhouse sanctuary for faith for those of you who have been deconstructing, like deconstructing within the church. That's awesome. You don't know how awesome that is. It's incredible. It doesn't happen. Let me just kind of quantify some of this because it's just like, so this isn't just like Brad, like, being effusive about something and being excited without being able to talk about details because it's public, right? Let me, let, me, let me put it this way. We went 19 months, one week, and two days, and I did count it to that degree. 19 months, one week, and two days between regular in-person weekly worship. There are churches of our size and larger. I know of three personally that didn't go longer than a year and do not exist anymore. They had to close their doors. And in the midst of our not being able to meet in person, God brought one of you to faith over live stream. Talk about a miracle. We regathered with slightly more people than we have we had on our launch team, and now we have 130 chairs, and we just had to buy 50 more to make space for you. It's incredible. Here's, here's the coolest thing, though. Like, this is probably the starkest and most, like, this is, this is incredible, okay? In terms of money given for mercy or diaconal need, okay, I went and counted it all up this week. Before the pandemic started, as a church, y'all had given $3,500 to help people who needed financial support, and that came through the church, $3,500. Since the pandemic started, y'all have given $56,000 to mercy needs. That's 16 times in the second half of our lifespan as a church compared to the first time. This is, this is above and beyond regular giving. $56,000. And that doesn't count what I know happens on such a regular basis here of people showing up for people personally, emotionally, relationally, financially, in whatever way is needed. There are so many more stories of this that I know I haven't even heard of because it's become normal enough in this community that it gets taken for granted. Praise the Lord. That's incredible. I'm focusing on this not just because it's the seventh anniversary, but because Psalm 147 is this kind of similar reflection on how God's goodness and grace has redeemed a people 
and how God has been faithful despite incredibly difficult, traumatic circumstances of every kind and variety in ways that you couldn't possibly encapsulate in, in a sermon, never mind in a psalm. And it is, it is a response, almost an offering to God out of gratitude, and it is bookended with praise. In fact, Psalm 147 is one of five psalms that ends the entire book of psalms, all 150 of them. It's one of five that end them that have what's called a hallelujah chorus in it, which means that, for example, when it says praise the Lord in verse 1 and then in verse 20, it ends with praise the Lord. All five of these psalms begin and end and are bookended with Praise the Lord. They call it a hallelujah chorus because that's the literal word that we are translating as praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is the combination of two Hebrew words. The first is, is to boast in, and the second is in Yahweh. Okay? To boast in. We boast in, we brag about, we proclaim, we praise something that we find meaningful and worthwhile. Something that has passed that threshold of like, hmm, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, that's really great. To something that's like, no. C.S. Lewis said that love is incomplete until it is expressed. There is something about praising God and boasting in God that actually consummates the love that he gives his people. And we are then expressing and returning it as gratitude. Yahweh, when it says if you, if you look at your Bible, if you have your Bible, it says, when it says, praise the Lord, you'll notice Lord is in all caps. That's because we, trans, we, we transliterate Yahweh as Lord in Scripture because there's a tradition that we didn't, wouldn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. And this is God's, Yahweh is God's name. It is who he is. It is the name by which he introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Psalm 147 says, because of all these things, of God's faithfulness to and through his people, that it is fitting, it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So why? That's what it opens up with. But throughout the rest of the psalm, the psalmist answers. It says, first of all, we praise the Lord because Yahweh names the stars and mends our hearts. Yahweh names the stars and mends our heart. Let me read, read verses 3 and 4 to refresh your memory. It says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their name. I did some research this week. I want to pre I want to... Uh, Prelude everything I'm going to say is I, I am a pastor with a... My bachelor's degree is in liberal arts... My seminary degree is in, it's, it's a master's in divinity, which is a weird oxymoron, okay? I'm not a scientist. There are people, some of you here, who could actually, like, confirm this. However, in my Googling and my do-your-own-research vein this week, you can see with a naked eye on a clear night without light pollution around 9,000 stars. 9,000 stars. Thanks to the James Webb Telescope, which replace the Hubble telescope. In the same image that became famous with the, the Hubble telescope, the James Webb uh, telescope took a picture of the same image and went from being able to see in one image, one spot in the sky, instead of 10,000 galaxies, we can now see in the same spot 
45,000 galaxies. 45,000 galaxies, each of which has somewhere between 100 million and 100 billion stars. Okay. The best guess total number of stars in the universe based on what we know in physics and extrapolating the directions of galaxies and all kinds of other math that I could not begin to explain. Apparently, the best guess total number of total stars in the universe is 100 to 200 sextillion. And to put that into perspective, I want to write all of the numbers, all of the zeros on the screen. Okay, that is one to two followed by 23 zeros. Okay. In Scripture, creating and naming happen hand in hand. You can't really separate them. It's why God, when He created man, He named him Adam in the first aspect of His relation, he, relationship with Adam. He gave him a name. When our children are born, i.e., they are, they are created in that sense, they are then named. The naming of something or someone implies intimate knowledge and a relational connection and authority that is, is utterly unique because of the person and it is through the one who is doing the naming. So for God to determine, as it says in verse 4, the number of stars is, 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 is to say that God created and gave each and every single one, specifically each of the stars in the sky, and then named every single one of them. And for God to do that in the way that the psalmist is talking about, what it implies and what it means is that he has a, a meticulous and attentive posture toward all of his creation. It is similar to the kind of care that an artist might have toward his or her painting or a sculptor toward his or her statue, except there are 200 sextillion of them. I'm not even making this up because it, like Paul is drawing on this kind of imagery in Scripture when he says in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema. If it sounds familiar, it's because it's where we get the word poem from. What Paul is saying is that we are God's works of art, more treasured than anything else in all creation. That God that created and named all 200 sextillion stars in the sky, that creator is nevertheless still not too great to notice our small affairs. Our concerns are somehow even more important to God than the creating and the naming of all the stars that have ever existed or will exist, period. Our inner workings are more of a concern to Him than the inner workings of fusion or the rotation of galaxies. In verse 3, when He says that He binds up our wounds... This is describing the kind of care a parent has for the skin needs of a beloved child who doesn't understand the hurt that they are experiencing, who doesn't understand the way the world works and is, is lovingly, compassionately condescending to our level, kneeling down and being with us to bind up our wounds, to speak the words, it's okay, and I am, I am here, I am with you, and I love you. 
the creator and namer of every star, does this. The one who knows all the stars by name knows you by name. Praise the Lord. We also praise the Lord because Yahweh delights in hope and he loves to give. Let me read verses 8 through 10 again. He says that Yahweh covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives food to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. With this this, what this section and what especially verses 12 through 20 also are saying is, is it's describing what theologians call God's aseity. If you want to, it's A-S-E-I-T-Y. If you ever have, a, you know, a, a trivia night need for, for this word, aseity. God's aseity means that God exists apart from or independent of any aspect of creation whatsoever. That means time, uh, matter, immaterial things, the space between the material things, literally all of the things that we could be putting under the umbrella of creation. God exists outside of time and space itself, and God is God in eternity, past, and future, all at the same time. And therefore, if, if, he, if he does, he doesn't need anything from us. Like, for example, like verse 10 says, you know, he, his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of man. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, this verse is particularly personal and triggering for me. And that's because I have very strong legs, okay? No, I'm serious. I have very strong, like, it's the only thing I got going for me, honestly, okay? My, I've got a bum shoulder now. I've never had good upper body strength, never been good at sports. I, the first time I skied, I was like, I know Just find me. I didn't know that there was a sport that exists that I could just squat slightly for a long period of time and I could excel. It's amazing. I love skiing for that reason. And I've never went skiing before until we moved out here. I'm just like, well, that's what, that's, that's crazy. That looks, no thanks. I love it. Okay. All joking aside, the reason why the psalmist is talking about man's legs is because the leg is the source of stability for a person. It's the thing that is exercised just by virtue of going out. It's the most natural place of strength. It means you're not special if you have strong legs. It's really hard. I'm sorry. I'm with you in this, okay? I feel your pain. But it's where your center of gravity is connected and your legs are the... It's what enables you to do anything. If you don't have your legs, if you don't have the strength in your legs, then you are helpless. God doesn't need anything from you, not the strength of your legs, not what you can train in a horse. It doesn't matter because if, the, if, he is a, if he is our creator, then we can't give him anything he, doesn't, he didn't already give us in the first place. Paul, actually, in the New Testament, he, he says this in Acts 17 when he's standing on Mars Hill in Athens and speaking to the most intellectual elites of his day. He says that the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Like, that's cute. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Even the fact that, like, this is awesome. This is why it's important that God is Trinity. He's Trinitarian. One God, three persons. That means that he doesn't even need humanity for relationship. 
because he existed in divine community and perfect community within himself from eternity past. Okay, why am I going on about this? <laughs> like, that's cool. Again, it will help you at Trivia Night. The reason why this is important is because the only motive then, if God doesn't need anything from us, the only possible motive that God could have in creation itself, never mind the ongoing sustaining and providing for us in our li everyday lives, is in order to give out of the outflow of his infinite love. God, in other words, is a host. And his hospitality begins with creation as an outpouring of the hospitality he enjoys within himself, and it ends in the restoration of all things. And everywhere in between is a function of the divine host's beautiful, gratuitous, obscene hospitality. Why does he do this? Because it's who he is. It's in God's name. Yahweh, right? The word Yahweh, this is the name that, like I said before, he gave Moses when Moses says, whom should I tell Israel has promised to deliver him? Who should I say has sent me to deliver this promise that you're making? And in Exodus 3, God says, my name is I am. I am who I am. It's the Hebrew verb, for, to be verb. The reason why he says this is because a name is a reference to something, right? Like uh, deacon's name, deacon, is, it's, it comes from the Greek word servant, right? It comes from something else. It's a reference to something that already exists. What is God's name if he has a saity and exists apart from time and space and does not need anything from us? I am. I am who I am. He's the original reference point to which everything and anything else in all creation that we can discern or not discern is all a, a reflection and finds its starting point in God and his creation. That means when he tells Israel, tell them, I am sent you, what he is doing in essence is he is signing his name on a contract, binding himself to delivering on his promise to rescue Israel from slavery. In other words, God is guaranteeing Israel's redemption by putting his very name on the line. He is identifying with his people in slavery in such a way that... This is so hard to describe because it's, it's like, like... I don't even have an imagination big enough for this. When the person whose name is the original reference point because he has a saity and it exists outside of time and space. When he is saying, I promise to do this and I, he's signing his name on the covenant to make that happen, it means that there is nothing in time and space that can possibly prevent God's redemption. There is nothing that can erode it, can weaken it. His name is on the line. He signed it in blood. God would have to be who he would have to cease to be God in order for that promise not to be kept. And so to know God then is to be redeemed and to be kept by that promise, that steadfast love and faithfulness. Praise the Lord. That means, guys, there's nothing we can do to mess it up. We could try really hard to screw it up, and it can't. We can't do anything. Lastly, we praise the Lord because Yahweh 
renames the redeemed. And this is where this all comes together. This is beautiful. Let me reread verse 19. It says, God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. Now, if like me, the first time you read this, you're focusing more on declaring his word and the statutes and rules, like, oh yeah, Jacob is Israel, like we know that, you know, that's how those are related, and so there's a, there's a thing there, but I'm really going to focus on the rest of the verse. Do not rush past this. <laughs> the transition between, from Jacob to Israel is one, is the, the difference there and the gap there is God's redemption and delivery on his promise. See, Jacob, if you don't know who he is, he, he was the grandson of, of Abraham, who God originally called from earth to the promised land of Israel. Jacob's name means he who supplants, he who deceives. It's the, the Hebrew word for, for Jacob it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for heal, which is it's, it's very poetic because when uh, he and his twin brother were born, Esau, when Esau came out, they saw a hand grabbing onto his heel because even from the womb, Jacob was like, I'm going to supplant you, right? This name, like Jacob's birth and his naming are hand in hand, just like the stars in the sky and are being named God's redeemed people. And it's from a place where there was nothing that could be redeemed apart from God's grace because from his very first breath, even before his first breath, he's already trying to be who he is in his nature, which is to supplant and to deceive. It goes on. When he grows up, uh, his father, Isaac, um, he fools him into giving him instead of Esau his birthright. And so that, that grabbing of the heel plays out, and Esau is livid. I mean, as you would be too, if you... Stole some, somebody stole your birthright. And Jacob flees, he runs, he leaves his family's land, it caught up to him, and he, he falls in love with uh, the daughter of a man named Laban. But Laban does the same thing back to Jacob, fools him, and then Jacob lies and deceives Laban so that he can rectify the situation. My whole point in, in focusing on this is like, this is a guy who's trying to redeem himself. His entire life, he is driven by some kind of innate need to, to fight and to contend against God so that he can affect his own redemption. Dishonestly, for most of it, he didn't have anything given to him that he did not have to, or he, that he did not end up deceiving or, or, or supplanting in order to achieve and to get. I wish we could really identify with some of these Old Testament figures. It's just so different from anything that we experience or, or may be motivated by, right? One night, the bill collector comes. One night, all of Jacob's hustle starts catching up with him, and he has nowhere left to run. And he's alone by himself at night in the woods when God shows up in the flesh. Now, we think... Theologians believe that this is what's called a Christophany, which is a, a pre-incarnate, so before Jesus came, he actually appears in the Old Testament in the flesh because God exists out of time and space, and then he came into earth as a human being, and so that kind of backfills in some weird way that I could not begin to explain for you, and he comes in the flesh and wrestles, literally struggles and strives and wrestles with Jacob, whose name means to contend and to supplant and to wrestle and to struggle, and they literally wrestle all night and Jacob is literally fighting with God. He's fighting against God. And 
What's amazing is the way the narrative reads, it says God noticed that he was doing pretty well. <laughs> like he was succeeding in some ways. And, and it, it says that God, this, or this man, notices, and so he touches his hip, and his hip dislocates. Because he's been holding back the whole time. He met Jacob where he was, dislocates his hip, the source of his strength, his center of gravity. Then he says, you need to let me go, because as I talked about a few weeks ago uh, in a sermon where uh, God is telling Moses that if you see my face, you will die because I am holy and you cannot withstand seeing my face. God is saying, let go, because if, if the sun comes up and you see my face, you're, you will die. You need to let go. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. Not till you bless me. Here's the difference. Because this sounds very similar to everything Jacob has done his entire life. He has been contending and trying to supplant blessing at every single point, but not from God. This is the first time he actually tries to get blessing from God. Let me read where the narrative picks up at that point. He says, it says, and God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In other words, Jacob finally stri stopped striving against God and started striving to know God. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name, right? He wants to know who this is. He wants to know God. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And it never says, God never says, there's nothing in the narrative that says God told him his name. It just says, and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen, the face, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel means seeing God, like where God's face is, okay? So you may be asking yourself, wait, I thought he couldn't see God's face. Are you saying that he did see God's face? I don't know, actually. I have no idea. This could be because Jesus, I mean, we could see Jesus' face, and there's something about God constraining himself into human, his human nature as, G, as Christ that, that maybe that didn't happen. But the way that the narrative reads, it implies that the, the, the primary point of here is that the blessing God gave Jacob was in knowing him. That Jacob may not have seen God's literal face, but he knew God. Because that's what it means to see somebody's face, is to know somebody. It means that when God renames Jacob Israel, he is renaming him in light of his being redeemed. That means, guys, like, I'm going to depart from my notes here for a second because I know some of you are living day to day and are suffering from this lie that says, I can't struggle with God. It can't be difficult. It has to be easy. I have to understand him. I have to actually experience or feel his presence in a visceral way like they do on the you know, megachurch TVs or whatever. Like Jacob did everything he could to run from God, and God pursued him. Loved him so much, he left the stars and the skies to enter into a dark forest to wrestle all night until Jacob decided that it was worth asking who he was. 
again, I'm departing from my notes here because I just want to like ask you, like, what is it God's trying to get your attention with? That you are that you truly, genuinely believe and have been have been operating off this false assumption that that it's this that whatever it is that's causing you pain, whatever dislocated hip you feel, is is God punishing you for something? And it's actually His trying to get His atten- your attention because you need to know He doesn't need anything from you, but He wants you. He knows you. And good news, bad news, guys, he's not going to give up. It's worth it to him. Let me pull all this together and we'll jump into the Q&A. But the language that I've been using of, of mending, delighting, loving, delivering, these are all synonyms and different emphases of the same thing that is God's redemption. Israel struggled against God too. It didn't just, it's not that, that on that night, Jacob and all of his descendants got it and figured it out, right? There was still the golden calf, <laughs> right? Israel, at the moment that this part of the Psalm, the, the, book five of the Psalms is trying to commemorate and, and articulate the experience of is God's people being returned from exile. And the exile came about because they were struggling against God again. It's almost like even though we are renamed, there is still some semblance of our story at work and at play that God has to redeem us again from. But it's more that he is sanctifying us because we still have a new name. It is no longer who we are. It is the sin that is within us, Paul says. And God is faithful to bring us back to him again. To be a people named redemption It needs to be a people redefined not by our struggle against God or even our struggle to know God, but by God striving to know us. To be a people named redemption is to proclaim that who we are, our dignity, value, and worth is not in the strength of our legs, no matter how good and natural it may have felt skiing that first time and how amazing it is every time since. That it is ultimately because of who we are to God that we are treasured and found more worthy of God's attentive care than all 200 sextillion stars in the sky. We praise the Lord because who we are to God is because of who God is in his nature. It is not because of who we are. He actually says this explicitly to Israel. I think it's in Deuteronomy. It's either Deuteronomy or Numbers. God says, like, you guys... May I, do it, may I remind you that you were a very small nation enslaved by the at then most powerful empire in the world. I didn't pick you because you had strong horses or legs. I didn't pick you because you had political influence or power. And if anything, I did so explicitly and intentionally because you didn't have any of those things. There's no more destitute, weak, helpless situation than the one you were in. You... I did that because you need to understand the only motive I have to give you grace is because of love. And it has nothing to do with you, but it is always forever and utterly for you. And that is a, it makes a world of difference. Frankly, When verse 5 says, great is our Lord and abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. I'm just like, I didn't know the psalmist could ever understate something. Because just trying to even understand that, it, 
It proves the point of the verse, which is that God is incomprehensible. But what is incredible is that that doesn't mean He's unknowable. If anything, He is not just knowable, He is near. Because all of his incomprehensive power and understanding is directed toward his knowing us. Praise the Lord. We praise the Lord for that, for God doing this with the church as a whole and for the table specifically. Seven years. How about 77 more? Before I choke up, I'm just going to pull up, see what questions we have. Thank you. What does it mean to fear God in a post-crucifixion, post-resurrection world? Putting hope in something we fear sounds strange to modern ears. Okay, <laughs> this is great. Um, you are right. It is very strange to modern ears. We should pay attention to that. It's not necessarily... so. Put a, put a pin in that and let me talk about, let me answer the question directly. What does it mean to fear God in a post-crucifixion, post-resurrection world? Okay, in asking that question, it kind of sounds like, you may not be implying this, but I want to just like kind of engage with this. It kind of sounds like you're saying that in the Old Testament, that the kind of fear that we should, the, the, the fear we should have for God is the kind of fear that is like being scared or, or afraid of, of punishment. That is not, you could not praise the Lord in the way that the psalmist is talking about if that were true. That means we should ask another question of like, okay, so what do they mean by fear? Because the way that what we mean by fear does not line up with that. What the Old Testament or the New Testament, because that language is in the New Testament too, when the primary meaning of that word, when you read it, read it as reverence. It means to find as, more, as significant and, and, and more significant than ourselves. That's why when Paul is saying um, in Philippians, you know, count one another as more significant than yourselves. The language he's using, he's using the word in the Septuagint for, for significance. It's related to this word. And what he's doing is he's saying, you know how like we should revere God? We should revere one another. It's actually, fi it's finding them boastworthy. Worth proclaiming and, and responding to in word and deed. And finding them as more significant than ourselves. That we would be the ones that the Lord lifts up. Because it says in verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. Now, Okay, that's answering the question. As far as why is that strange to modern ears, it's because we, we have lost a whole lot of sense of what reverence and holiness is. We live in what Charles Taylor calls a, a disenchanted era, which means that we live in a world that has an explanation for everything, and our day-to-day -day is not, like our lives are no longer under threat because of nature. We have controlled nature or at least fooled ourselves into thinking about it, and it's only something that we see in a headline every once in a while on the news, right? Our day-to-day -day experience is not threatened. Because, because of that, we, because we don't fear nature, we've actually lost a reverence for God. And we live in a world that, that now, where the incentives and the plausibility structures, and I can talk about this forever, but like everything in the world aims us toward atheism instead of transcendence. And so... This idea of fearing and hope, fear and hope being able to be mixed is because we actually have fooled ourselves into thinking that our legs or our horses or our iPhones or our vocations are boastworthy enough to compete with and even surpass God. That's, a, that's why it's weird. Okay. Next question. 
Scripture tells me that we are deeply loved and cherished by the Lord, but I don't always feel welcomed by his church, and I don't know how to reconcile that. Man, I'm sorry, first of all. If uh, So this person, you've, you've only texted in a couple times, so that means you may be newish here, or maybe because you save these questions for when you really want an answer. Either way, know that that's not the way it should be. Um, God doesn't just like... <laughs> Let me say two things. One, we're in a weird time in the history of the church that is not the only time that this has happened, but it's when it, it seems that God is doing some winnowing. And we are having some of the things that we thought were actually transcendent and holy and worthy of reverence about God, some beliefs or some ideas about him or the way that we lived in light of that, that because of the pandemic and because of the cultural clash that we are watching unfold in the news every night, all of that is undoing it. And there are a lot of cultural Christians that are being shown as such, okay? That doesn't mean, like I'm aware of the no true Scotsman's fallacy, don't worry, I'm not saying that they weren't Christian, I'm just saying that we're all sinners and this is a place where like we often work out hard things poorly. And I'm sorry, and especially if that, because a, a, a part of me wants to tell you that like, I'm glad you're here because that won't happen here and I would li- I'd be lying to you, okay? I want you to feel welcome and it is actually those things that God uses to demonstrate his grace because it is through the repentance and forgiveness that God grows us in that. In terms of how to reconcile that, oh man, just re- like Israel, the name of God's people was given not to Abraham, which means, fa- you know, it was, it was uh, Abram and then Abraham. It means, you know, father and then father of many, right? It, it, Israel wasn't called Abraham, God's people, Abraham, or, or Isaac, the, the promised son that was from that. No, it's the guy whose name meant deceiver. All of God's people, like we are broken. And weirdly, it is that brokenness and that broken community that God somehow is like, hey, you know how we're gonna, how I'm gonna demonstrate my love? It's by getting broken people together in the same room and then making them family and then loving them and forgiving them even though in their repentance they're gonna sin again. And I'm telling you, a God of love is gonna have to show up in that room. And that's weird. And I don't know how to reconcile that either except that Jesus did on the cross. Paul says he broke down the dividing walls of hostility. And he made us one. So that is a spiritual reality, even when it is not our experienced reality. That's hard. If you want to follow up with, on that, um, please, would love to talk about that. Or if maybe you resonated with that question and you've got some church hurt you want to process, you should know that there are a lot of people in this church where that is the case. You're not alone and you're loved. And I'm glad you're here. Let me pray. <sighs> Jesus, I feel especially burdened by that last question and especially poor in giving any kind of a clear answer. Lord, it is a miracle and it is amazing and it is, it is worthy of praising you that your church even continues to exist once any of us meet each other. <laughs> but Lord, it is, it is actually that reality, that the ongoing existence, that this is your love that happens and and continues to build the church despite 
our best efforts and are struggling and are contending otherwise. Lord, I pray that you do the work, that you help us, help us to see your love and grace so that we can bring down whatever walls it is that's, that is that causes so much of the strife, that we could like take a deep breath and look back at seven years or 77 years or however long it is and to see your faithfulness, to respond in gratitude, knowing that that is not because there hasn't been anything hard, but because you have been steadfast in your love and faithfulness no matter what it is that's happening. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these things when we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So we come to the table this morning being reminded um, that the only way that we can come